I don't want to be like, oh, all the books are terrible. It's not like that at all. Oh, I think... all the books are terrible. <laughs> Welcome to Writing in Real Life, a podcast about writing, marriage, publishing, and parenting. I'm Morgan Baden, and with me is my co-host and my husband, Barry Liga. Hey. Hi. So we had such a nice family day today. We did. The four of us. It was really fun. I was on vacation, or vacation, as our daughter calls it, Yes. Um, last weekend, and I took our daughter down to my parents' house. You stayed here with the baby, and your mom came up. And I got to escape to the beach for a few days with my friends for our annual beach week vacation, which was awesome. But it was really nice to be home today and, like, actually have a nice family day with the four four of us. us, Mm -hmm. It was really fun. Everyone was in good spirits. And it was just the four of us. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it hasn't been just the four of us in a while. That's true. Um, But so we came home after uh, an afternoon out at the bookstore and at the ice cream store. And I promptly posted two photos of my kids to my Instagram account. Uh, so this is fresh in my mind. So I want to talk about sharing kid photos on uh. social media. We've talked about this a bit before, but there was an article recently in the Washington Post um, called Are Parents' Social Media Habits Teaching Kids the Wrong Lessons? And in it, the writer yes. tells... <laughs> well, yes. Uh, short answer, yes. Um, but the writer tells of a story of her teenage son who... Um, posted a photo of his friend's older sister in a bikini. The girl didn't know that he was had even t- taken the photo, let alone posted it, and it was an unflattering photo. So the comments were horrible about this random girl yeah. that the, the guy barely knows. So the mom started to, the writer of this piece, um, really susses out like how something like that can happen. And she realized that it starts with the parents because think of all the times that parents post embarrassing photos of their kids right. on social, uh, no matter what they age, no matter what age they are, without their consent, basically. And obviously, there are different levels of extremes here. You know, I think we've all seen stories in the past of like, you know, a dad posted something. There was a dad who posted a, a selfie making fun of his daughter's selfies. Right. He dressed up like yeah, her. Yeah, which I thought was so mean and yeah. like mean spirited. Um, but I really appreciated this article because, um, because a, it shows that the things that we're doing are obviously modeling, you know, we are models for our kids behavior. Um, but B, it's really something I try hard not to do. Uh, as you know, like on my, my public facing Instagram, I don't ever show the kids faces, although that has changed recently with Instagram stories, but those don't last. So, um, so I'm a little bit more flexible with them. Um, and then there's even a private, I have a private Instagram account that is full face photos of the kids. Uh, but of course, I, I don't let everyone view that. You curate that. Exactly, that yeah. yeah. And on Facebook, it's a little bit different because Facebook really is my friends, people I, I know and have met in real life. And your account is locked down. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, most it's people only people don't, I know. Right. Um, well, so, but, um, but most people may have, for example, only the friends on Facebook, right, but, but they, they don't have... realize that their profile is public and everything right. they're saying anybody can look at. Right, yeah. In your situation, only the people that you are actually friends with of can course. see it. Yeah. So anyway, uh, you know, I, I was just really struck by this because it's a thing that we continue to see. So obviously social's been around for a while now, but for years, like years ago, I would see friends of mine even posting photos of their kids that were just embarrassing and just, again, like, in mean-spirited, I think. Yeah. And if I were 
I, I was one of those kids who was so embarrassed by like my dad in particular because my dad is a really funny dancer and he knows that it would make me turn bright red when he danced funny and so he would do it purposely sure um and i would die it's part of the joy of having kids of course it is yeah um but like i I can't imagine my parents ever if social existed when i was a kid like them posting a photo of me that i would have hated or anything like that you know so i mean what do you think about that you are someone who doesn't share photos of kids at all i mean i have shared a couple of pictures that have been judiciously cropped okay um and in one instance i i used a massive blur effect um oh yeah yeah but yeah i i mean it's a slight bit different for me because unlike you 90 percent of my social media presence is um uh publicity yeah is me talking to people I don't know personally. Mm-hmm. Me talking to strangers who the only thing we have in common is we both like my books, <laughs> which is great. And and that's a wonderful use of social media and it's terrific. But I don't know these people. They don't know me. And so, yeah, um, you know, I am no more likely to show them pictures of our kids than I am to step onto the subway and hold up my phone and go, hey, everybody, check it out. Look at my kid. Look at my kid. Uh Um, It's just not something that that I'm going to do. If I had some sort of private social media presence, I might do that more. And I've been threatening for years to actually set that up Mm -hmm. where I would actually have a Facebook account that is really just Just genuinely friends of mine. Uh But my absolute loathing of Facebook (laughs) and everything it represents prohibits me from doing this yeah um so it, it hasn't happened yet yeah if, if i could find a platform that i didn't have massive like moral qualms about i might do i it. don't think they but, exist to be frank i like i don't tumblr was getting there tumblr mm. was pretty close but then tumblr sold out to yahoo and yeah blah 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 yeah um i think what i really want to touch on with this though um is when we look at the broader landscape of of people doing things on social without other people's consent, sure. So like revenge porn, oh well, I mean, that kind of stuff. Yeah. No, no, I mean that's the obviously the extreme end of it. But anything, um, you know, like uh, I wouldn't walk into a store and post to take a photo of someone. So there, there was that court case of the former model who took a Snapchat. Of a woman in her locker room gym. Oh, right. And made fun of her. Yeah. Obviously, that's... uh, So doing something like that, of course, without consent is incredibly problematic. It it just proves that technology generally acts as an extension to what is already there. Yeah. So if you are an asshole... Yeah. Technology makes you more... Makes you... Well, it doesn't necessarily make you more of one, but it just makes it easier for you to project that to the world. Yeah. Um, But I think it's one of those things where... Again, those are extreme measures, but, like, consent is important in all aspects of life, including social media. Yeah. And I want parents to take that advice. Yeah. I mean, you know, to me, this sort of was solidified for me many years before we had kids. Mm -hmm. I think even before you and I met. Yeah. Um, You know, my brother has a daughter who is older than our kids, much older than our kids. And um, so he was dealing with this early on. And I remember I said to him at one point, oh, you know, you're on Facebook. Why don't you ever show pictures of of the baby or Mm -hmm. anything like that? And he said, uh, said, you know, she has the right to decide when she wants pictures of herself out there Mm -hmm. in the world. You know, she she has rights. You know, she she may be a a toddler, but she has the right to decide that at some point for herself. And I was like, oh, that's, yeah, that makes perfect sense. 
And, you know, and, uh, and, and to this day, when they do show pictures of her um, on, on social media, they make sure it's okay with her first. Mm-hmm. Like, or they'll say, let's take a picture for Facebook. Yeah. And so she knows that's what's happening with yeah. this, you know. And, and it's, it's a whole, you know, she's old enough to understand what that means. Yeah. So, yeah. I, and I mean, I, I think there's a balance. I'm not recommending that everyone just immediately not post anything ever anywhere until the kid is old enough to even understand what consent right. is, right. of course. But although if you choose to do that, more power to you. Yeah. Um, but there's a way, you know, like, like you said, like you don't show faces and things yeah. like that. And, and, and again, deciding what to show and what not to show, yeah. trying not to embarrass your kids. Nothing's going to come back to haunt them. I mean, right. you know, I mean, this we have is... amazing photos of our daughter being potty trained. Right. I would literally gonna, never do anything with of those. Of course. Yeah. But, you know, it, it's sort of the classic, you know, 30 years ago, it was the classic sitcom moment where, you know, the uh, the, the boyfriend or girlfriend comes over to the house to meet the parents and the parents pull out the photo album. And it's like, right. here's a picture of our daughter slash son running around naked, yeah. you know, and it's the exact same thing. Like, well, it's not don't, the exact don't same do thing. that. I'm saying don't do that. No, no, no. Yeah. I, uh, right. And which we agree with. But it's it's more dangerous on social. Right. Right. But yes. I'm, I'm saying it's the same attitude. Of, sure. Of oh I have this picture and I am allowed to show it to whomever I like uh-huh. and again even though it's again me. technology yeah. just allows you to project it out of your living room mm-hmm. and out of your photo album to the entire world yeah so while we're on the parenting subject you and I are writers to varying degrees yes writing is obviously a, I I think in a lot of people's estimation but particularly in probably ours an incredibly important skill for anyone to have I am constantly shocked by the different levels of writing skill that I come across oh, at oh, work. It's a swamp out there. Yes, it really People is. People are terrible at writing. I mean, they don't even get the basics. Right. It's really ridiculous. And I've definitely seen people who are, you know, freshman comp professors or senior year English teachers complaining about the, the horrible writing skills of their students. I am constantly shocked by how people can get through high school and four years of college and not know how to write right like a simple business letter yes yeah with any facility at all so obviously um my interest was piqued when i saw this next thing that i want to talk about which was an article in the new york times called what can parents do to nurture writers and it's funny because i don't think about nurturing like when i think of our kids and the skills i want them to have i don't necessarily think i need to nurture their writing skills I do think that about their reading skills. Like, obviously, we want them to be big readers. They are big readers. Well, in particular, our daughter. And and I know all the data behind the importance of reading and the importance of having books in the home and the importance of having parents model that kind of behavior and whatnot. Um, have you ever thought specifically about, like, hey, I want, I want to make sure our kids are good writers? No, not until now, honestly. <laughs> I mean, I, I always... I guess because to me, since writing is what I do... Yeah. I think of it as, you know, do I want them to grow up to be writers? Right. And the answer is not necessarily. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I want them to find their own path. And if that happens to be writing, then then that's fine. But I, I want them to do what, what fulfills them and makes them happy. Um, but no, now that you've said it, yeah, it's really, it's important, mm-hmm. you know. Like um, no matter what they do. Right. I mean, our, our, our good friend Paul Griffin, um, who is a magnificent writer himself, spends a lot of time in prisons, mm-hmm. um, not because he's done anything. He goes there to talk to kids who are in jail and uh, to, to, you know, give them some, some advice. And one of the things he talks about is he talks about how it's important to know how to write and it's important to know how to tell a story. 
And he says, you may think this isn't important to you, but mm -hmm. you tell a story to the person you want to hire you for a job. You're going to tell a story to the parole board. You're going to tell a story to the judge. Like you need You're going to tell a story to the person you're dating who you want to spend the rest of your yeah. life with. You're going to tell you know, it. Yeah. These are, these, it's an important skill to have, like, to know how to yeah. tell a story. Owning a narrative. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think that the idea of being able to write goes hand in hand with that. Whoever you are, being able to write is going to help you mm -hmm. um, with whatever you're doing. And, yeah, so it's it's important that, that, that they be good writers. Yeah. I worry about that because I know that I am something of an unforgiving perfectionist. And I worry about, <laughs> like, like, I'm really preparing myself now for, like, you know, when Leia comes home from the second grade with the first story she's ever written uh -huh. for, for school. Like, I have to tell her it's awesome. Like, well, you do. even though yes. I'm going to read it uh -huh. and go, this sucks. So these are the times has some tips. OK. OK. Um, number one, reading is critical, but it's not enough. So when yeah. you're so when we're reading to our kids, we should be stopping occasionally to highlight maybe how beautiful that passage was or right. to think to, to highlight like, wow, I really felt like I was part of that scene. Mm. Why do you, were, did you feel that way too? I wonder why. Oh, it's because the writer used this kind of language and, you know, that kind of stuff. So um, so it's really about analyzing the text when we're reading together, which is uh, great. And like, okay, noted, I will do that now. When we're reading the princess book for the 10,000th time that our daughter is currently obsessed with, yes. I will be sure to analyze that scintillating <laughs> fascinating oh smart text God. that Talk disney about has not written. being able to write mm -hmm. um and then the second main point is to affirm but don't overcorrect so uh. so um the affirmation is really important from parents like great job on this this was really funny this was really great i love that you tried this um and correct a little bit but certainly don't overwhelm them with corrections yeah. and you know let them take the writing in their own their own path their right. own way so um, but we'll, of course, include this link in the show notes because yes. uh, I thought it was intriguing and, yeah. and helpful information. So it's summer, almost the end of summer, basically. And I want to talk about summer reading for a minute. Okay. Okay. So I'm kind of annoyed. I had a long list of summer reading. Yeah. I was really excited about all of them. I feel like I've been reading a lot of duds. See, you're where I was a yeah. couple of years ago on this show, yeah. where I, I just couldn't find a good book to read. Yeah, and I, I don't want to be like, oh, all the books are terrible. It's not like that at all. Oh, I think, all the books are terrible. <laughs> I think I was looking for a certain book, and I just haven't found it yet. Huh. It was Toni Morrison who said, if there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. Yeah. And I feel like that's what I've been doing all summer, is like seeking out the book that clearly I want to write. But anyway, it's been I've been really bummed by the fact that... I, I just haven't attached myself to a particular book this summer. And I had bought so many books. I went on a couple of separate book buying sprees. Um, and I just haven't found the one that's that's been my, like, amazing summer read. Summer's so not over yet. It's not. And I do have, again, I have a long list of books to go. Um, but it's just something I was, you know, a little bit bummed about. But while, while we're speaking about reading, um, I found another great piece in the New York Times that I thought was really funny. And as a man, the, I want to get... The failing New York Times. The failing New York Times. Yeah. So Danielle Handler, a.k.a. Lemony Snicket, wrote something called, Want Teenage Boys to Read? Easy. Give them books about sex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, I tried that, Dan. 
I tried that. It uh, didn't work for me, but okay. <laughs> so we know um, there's a lot of research and data that shows that girls outread boys anyway. Yeah. Um, but then there's an even bigger drop-off right around puberty, so around 11 or 12, and yeah. boys just stop reading. Yep. And that's where they usually pick up video games or sports, um, whereas girls also have a drop-off, but not in the numbers that you see in boys. So keeping teenage boys reading or keeping boys reading generally is an important thing. And um, to Daniel's point, he says, quote, The books I read as a teenager, sex and all, made me a better boy and then a better man, just as literature continues to make me a better husband, a better father, a better feminist. I want that for my son and for all my young readers of every gender. Let's not smirk at their interests. Let's give them books that might engage them. So what do you think about that? I, sounds good to me. Um, I, I always have difficulty when the topic of how do we get boys to read comes up. Uh-huh. I have a lot of trouble. Because you with didn't this topic. have problems. Because I never had I yeah. read constantly from, from the time I started reading until now. I mean yeah. I, I always read. But let's so I, I want to dig into that for a second because Daniel says the same thing. But what happened to him is when he was 12, his local children's librarian librarian steered him into the non-children's section of the library yeah. and said, go have fun. Right. YA wasn't a section, just yeah, like it wasn't for you. It wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he he found freedom in that right. and just was able to read whatever he wanted. And it turns out, of course, a lot of... And he read wonderful books and not so wonderful books, but... Um, there was sex in the books he read. Yeah. And he says that's what kept him coming back for more. So what kept you reading? Like, wh- This is where I have to confess to my teenage porn habit. No, <laughs> no, no. But like, because you were the anomaly who continued reading yeah. voraciously, why? What's, what was your secret? I, I, I don't know. I mean, and I've, I, I got into this discussion with Shannon Hale on Twitter okay. um, several, many, many months ago. Where she kept saying, but why, but why? And, and, and she and some other people were jumping in saying, but, you know, did your parents push this? Or, uh, and, and no, I, I just kept reading. Yeah. Um, you know, part of it, my dad was a really, like, voracious reader. And so was my stepmother. Okay. So there were always books lying around the house. And my dad read a lot of thrillers and mystery novels. Mm-hmm. And I would just pick them up and read them because they were lying around the house. And some of them had sex in them. I mean, you know. And, yeah, I mean, (laughs) I certainly paid attention to that. (laughs) Uh, My stepmother read a lot of romance, but also... Um, well, you know, not romance. I think I think now retroactively it would be considered chick lit, probably. But anyway, <laughs> she read a lot of that. But she also read a lot of horror. She read a lot of Stephen King. Oh, really? And that's where I started reading Stephen King because okay. they were lying around, and I started reading them. Um, I, you know, I do know that when we had to read things in school, I was, I usually found them more interesting than other kids did. Really? Um, you know, I remember reading uh, A Tale of Two Cities. And finding it very interesting. Mm-hmm. And everybody else is like, oh, it's just something we have to read. But I think, you know, th- this is usually the reverse. But I think the fact that I was a writer made me want to read. Huh. Okay. I found stories interesting because I wanted to tell to stories. To tell them as well. Yeah. And so I would look at them from that perspective. Um, and, and, and it was all grist for the mill. It was all what, what can you come up with? You know, very early on, I read an interview with a comic book writer that that uh, I admired, and he was talking about how to become a, a good writer. And he said, you have to read. You have to read everything you can get your hands on. And don't just read the kind of thing you want to write. Read everything. 
because it will all inf- it will all inform what you want to write. Yeah. And and I'll never forget the example he said, read a book about the life and death of a blade of grass. <laughs> it's going to make you a better writer. Yeah. And I think I was at that age where I took that seriously. Yeah. So everything that was put in front of me that I was compelled to read for school, instead of looking at it as, oh God, I have, I have to, to read this, this. I was like, okay, bring it on. What am I going to learn? What am I going to get out of yeah. this? Bring it on. Let me, let me do this. And, and it's funny. I try to do that now Yeah. because it's so easy now. No one's assigning me work. Right. I obviously have the freedom to choose whatever book I want to read. I have to force myself sometimes to go outside my comfort zone. Yeah. Because yeah. I know that it will make me a better reader and hopefully a better writer. But no matter what, I'll learn something from it. Right. Even if I, even if all I learn is I don't like books about X, Y, Z, you know, or I didn't and, like that structure or whatever. And, and that to me is part of the pursuit of of becoming a, a broader reader. It, you don't have to love everything you read, mm-hmm. but you can get something out of yeah. it. And I know that for me, several years ago, I started keeping lists of all the books that I read in a yeah. year. Uh, and I sort of had a little competition with myself to see, can I read more books this year than the previous uh-huh. year? Um, and, and as I started looking, um, I started to realize that that my list, purely unconsciously, was not terribly diverse. Mm. And so I made a conscious effort to rectify that. Yeah. And in some cases, the, the books that I sort of forced myself to read just weren't to my liking. Um, but I still got something out of it. Mm-hmm. I still learned something. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's tough because we're not kids anymore where we have all this free time. Yeah. You know, we don't have a lot of free reading time that's, anymore. Maybe that's and, part of it. Yeah. And so it's difficult to convince yourself to, to take a risk, to take a risk. You know, the easiest thing in the world. I mean, I went on a binge about six months ago where I read like six or seven books by the same author in a row yeah. because I knew I was going to like every single one mm-hmm. and they didn't challenge me, but I enjoyed every single one and I knew that I would. Yeah. Um, because I have very, very little reading time Yeah. and, and I didn't want to quote unquote waste it yeah. on possibly something I might not like. So, you know, it, it can be difficult to, as you say, to read outside your comfort zone a lot. And a lot of times, because we don't even realize we're in a comfort zone. Mm-hmm. A lot yeah. of times we, you know, it just doesn't even occur to us that, that, Oh, I've read, you know, six books by the same kind of person yeah. in a row. Yeah. You just don't even realize it. Mm-hmm. You're just blowing through books. So I keep a list too on my blog of, uh, every December I publish it of yeah. the books that I read this past year. And, um, it's funny cause I've, I think I've only been doing it for maybe four years, so not that long. Only four posts, really. But, um, God, I am I am one of those readers who reads books that are 99% written by women. Yeah. Like, if I have one male author who isn't you on it, I'm like, oh, <laughs> I read a dude. <laughs> I read a dude. So, um, but the one thing that I did notice when I started keeping that log was that I don't read nonfiction and so I've really been trying to branch out into nonfiction a lot yeah. more. Um, and I think last year I had four nonfiction titles out of like 54. Yeah. Um, but that was like a 400% increase from the year before. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm getting there. But it is, I do like the idea of keeping a log and um, yeah. and then you can see you what can kind of pattern and, you have. Right, you can see the trends and you yeah. can see, oh, is there something I'm missing? Or, yeah. or you can just look back and go, oh no, like I really enjoyed what I read. Yeah. yeah. Or on the other hand, you know, this planet is terrible and life is short. So read whatever you want to read. Yeah. Even if it's all the same book, I don't yeah. care. 
There's yeah, that too. There is that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're sitting here in your office. Yes. And we are. Uh, this office is still a work in progress. We've been in here a little over a year. Yeah. In this house. Yeah. Not in this office. We we do branch out of the office sometimes. Um, I rarely branch no, out of the office. No, you don't. That's but, true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but one of the things that's been um, a problem, but I use problem like in quotes, is with this office is figuring out how to store your comic book collection. <laughs> right? Uh, yes. Yes. So how many boxes of comic books do you have? I mean, it's a very small collection. Now. Yeah. It, it's, it's uh, the geeks will, will get this. It's eight short boxes. Okay. Um, which used to be much bigger. Used to be much bigger. But when I moved to New York, I'm like, I don't have the room to store this. So I, I went to my local comic book store and I sold back a huge, huge number of comic books to them. Um, and uh, really pared the collection down to the stuff that I just could not stand to be without. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's not a huge amount. It's just the right amount that it's really difficult to find a good storage solution. Right. Yeah. And so I think one of the things that uh, attracted me to you in the beginning of our courtship was that you're a collector. Okay. I'm a collector too. Yeah. Not comic books, but uh, basically books from my childhood. So yeah. Babysitter's Club, Sweet Valley, Sunset right. Island, et cetera, et cetera. Um, which I think is kind of similar, obviously d- different. Yeah. Because comic books is in itself like a whole industry that i know very little about but i do know that there are reprints of things there's black and white versions and then colors there's um standalones and then like compilations right yeah 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 so all this stuff so i came across a an essay on book riot called i can't speak an essay on book riot called the perils of comic book collecting oh god that i think you would be interested in i i live the perils of comic (laughs) book i know i know but she really talks about how um how her, she spent years building up her collections on certain certain things, mm-hmm. but then like uh, when DC published the first seven issues of the Justice League International Collection in a single volume, well, she had to get that too, even though she had the sure, yeah, exactly. And then a few years later, they re-released those issues in a new trade dress, and of course she of had, course to, get she had to get those too, too. Yeah. Um, and so on and so forth. It, it, and it's even worse when, as I did, you worked in the industry. Oh God, yeah. I mean, for ten years, I got free copies of so many things, and it's just, it's just yeah. insane. And even to this day, I mean, you know, I have friends who are in the business who will give me, you know, oh, we just published, you know, remember that great story from the eighties? We just published it in hardcover. Yeah. Here's a copy, and yeah. I'm like, great. Now I have ten copies of this story, but I'm right. like, but I but have I to have all, all of them. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's funny because I always think like. I wish, I mean, obviously with something like the Babysitter's Club in particular, and again, I work at Scholastic, so, and that's a Scholastic title, so I'm not speaking on behalf of the company there, but um, there were the classic editions, and then they re-released artwork sometime in the mid-90s, and then they re-released the Babysitter's Club um, again when I was working at Scholastic in, I think it was 2010, um, when the prequel came out, and then there are the graphic novel versions by Raina Telgemeier and Gail Galligan. And yes, I am immediately like, need, need, need. Must have it. Uh-huh. Gotta have it. And it's different with um with the old classics from the eighties because um I don't like I don't have every version of those. I don't have every version of book one or every version of book two or anything right. like that, because that feels a little bit crazy. There are like close to three hundred babysitters club titles and then uh, we do not have a big enough house for that. <laughs> um but I do think about that with things like Harry Potter, where there's yeah. all the different versions and they're beautiful and they're all different, but they are geared towards the collectors out there. Right. Um, 
so I guess just a shout out to the collectors out there. The, the collector mentality is a beautiful and insane thing. It is. It really is. And, and uh, it, it can be bad sometimes. I, mean, I know people who have been buying certain comic book series for like 30 years, even though they stopped enjoying it like 15 really? years ago. But they're like, I have to have all of them. And they just, they don't even like it anymore, but they wow. keep buying it. Yeah. And that's, that's part of the collector mentality. It is, yeah. You know? It'll, it'll kill you if you, if you let it. Right, right. <laughs> All right, let's do a quick update on writing and or reading. Sure. Um, I am thrilled to share that I have been writing a ton. You have been. I'm so excited. Um, I came up with an idea what, a month ago now, probably? I'm Not even? pretty sure I gave you the idea. Well, I was going to say I came up with an idea inspired by a joke that you made Thank on you. Twitter, by the way. See, even my jokes are brilliant <laughs> ideas. Um, but I, I don't know if people know um, or care, but uh, this summer has been called the Summer of Hell for people commuting in and out of Penn Station. And um, I am one of the people who has been affected by the Summer of Hell. We'll there put a been... link in the show notes. Yeah, we will, yeah. But there's been a, a ton of uh, transit changes while they try and fix the the horribly broken tracks, um, which means that my commute is longer, and I have suddenly been taking my laptop with me to work, my personal laptop, and when I take that 7.45 a.m. train, I sit down and I write the entire time, Yeah. even on days where I'm, where I'm like, oh, I'm really tired, I just want to zone out to a podcast okay, let me just put down this quick idea I had for this next chapter or whatever. And then I find myself writing anywhere from 500 to 800 words a morning. It's great. Which is awesome. And, like, I feel like I'm doing it without even thinking about it, which is great. Um, and the other thing is that I've realized uh, it's really, really vital for me to write my personal stuff in the morning before I get to work. Yep. Because I am just too tired and too wiped out on the way home or in the evenings anymore. So... Uh, so that's what I've been doing. So it's really exciting. That's awesome. Yeah. So thank you to Chris Christie for never Dropping fixing. The ball. Yeah, yeah, never fixing the transit problems in New Jersey. Thanks to the federal government for always cutting the the funds for Amtrak because uh, you guys are making my writing life a little bit improved. So that's <laughs> nice. How about you? What are you up to? Well, uh, without going into too many details, um, I've been on sort of medical leave for a little yes, while. That's true. Um, so I haven't been getting a, a whole lot done. I'm. Uh, I finished writing the second book in the Flash trilogy, and I am currently waiting for my editorial letter on that. Okay. And once I get that, and once I have approval, like once Warner Brothers has said, yes, this book two is fine, then I will start writing book three. Amazing. Which is going to be a lot of fun. Um, I have a couple of other little things that are floating around. I am working on a TV pilot with a friend of mine. So cool. Uh, I hasten to add, this is not oh, somebody hired me to write a TV pilot. This is, no, we're trying to write a pilot that we would then sell. Right. So don't look for my name on your TV anytime soon. Um, although, who knows? Maybe, right? <laughs> um, and so so that's the, those are the, the, the big things right now that I've got going on cool. as far as writing goes. As far as reading goes, uh, I have just begun the new Tom Parada book, Mrs. Fletcher. Excellent. Um, Tom Parada, who is, of course, probably best known for The Leftovers, um, which we've t the TV show of which we have spoken about many times on mm -hmm. this show. Uh, Tom Prada, best known to me as the first person who took me seriously as a writer. Yeah. I'm gonna say uh, he was my one of my writing professors in college, and was very very kind to me at a time where I really needed somebody to be kind to me. See affirmations. So, yeah, no, not I overcorrections. Mean, it was it was uh, it, it was a, a tough time. Um, 
and and he was a good guy so that helped out a lot so uh uh, I am literally just started his new book, so yeah. I can't can't even offer you anything other than <laughs> other than there's no typos on page one that I can see. So there you go. Cool. All right. Well, we are going to wrap it up here. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you have a great uh, a solar eclipse happening this week. By the time you hear this, the eclipse will be over, so either we'll all be dead or it will have turned out not to be a problem. Yeah, but enjoy. I hope you enjoy it regardless. Um, find us online at writinginreallife.com. Find us on Twitter at WIRL Podcast. And please rate us on iTunes when you stop by to, to give this episode a listen. We really appreciate it. Have a great week, everyone. Bye. Bye.